This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. I'm so glad you're here for the 51st episode of the Best Song Podcast. We're going to have a big celebration here because this episode will be covering the songs nominated from films released in 1983, which was the 50th anniversary of the creation of the Best Song Award. In those 50 years, the category changed with the times, sometimes very reluctantly, to reflect the changing tastes of not only the movie-going public, but also the music industry. In the first 50 years of the Best Song Award, 285 songs competed for the coveted award, and that includes the five nominees we'll hear in this episode from 1983. The honor of being an Oscar-winning songwriter didn't carry much weight in the first few years, since most songwriters were under contract at a particular studio and had job security, at least until the contract ended. But it was, like all other Oscar categories, an award that was highly coveted and helped keep songwriters employed and at the top of the list of people to hire. Around the early 1950s, the studio system began to change and songwriters became freelancers. An Academy Award, a Billboard number 1, and a big influx of cash to the publishing house suddenly made writers such as Sammy Kahn, Dmitry Tiomkin, and Henry Mancini famous and rich. The songs we have heard in the past 50 episodes were not all stunners. Remember Past That Peace Pipe from 1947? Yeah, seemed like a good song idea at the time, but it has not aged well. And there were a few songs that were performed on screen in blackface, which society has tried to explain away, but they still exist. But we did get the likes of White Christmas, Over the Rainbow, Moon River, and Theme from Shaft, just four of the first 49 Oscar-winning songs that have become classics. One of the biggest trends to come from the early years of the Best Song Oscar was the title song, which helped keep the title of the movie fresh in moviegoers' minds as they went from the movie theater to the record store. And even as we continue through the history of the Academy Awards, the title song will be the most popular type of song to be nominated and sometimes win an Academy Award. The 50th year of the Best Song Academy Award brought us not one, but two pieces of history, while bringing us full circle back to the very first year of rewarding the work of writing songs for movies. For the first time in history, two films each have two Oscar-nominated songs, making the competition for the Best Song Oscar a three-film race instead of the usual five. Before we dive into them, remember that I'm going to be talking about some crucial plot details in all of these movies. Flashdance is the first of those 1983 movies to get two Oscar song nominees. The movie has since become a cultural icon for fashion, music, dancing, and so much more, more so than its cousin Fame did in 1980. Jennifer Beals, who plays the lead character Alex, is a dancer at a cabaret at night and a steel welder by day. 
the film depicts her love of dancing and her negligence to take her talents any further than the cabaret stage. The first of the two nominated songs from the movie is the title song, which we first hear over the opening credits. Alex is on a bicycle on her way to work, as the lyrics say, in a world made of steel, made of stone. The visuals of Pittsburgh and the steel mill where Alex works don't mesh with the song really, because it's mostly about the feeling that dancing creates. But it does set the stage for the rest of the film and Alex's character.
The passion conveyed in the song is shown several times throughout the film, in several well-filmed dance scenes in the cabaret. A couple of people convince Alex to audition for the Pittsburgh Conservatory, including an old friend and former dancer named Hannah and her boss-slash-boyfriend, Nick. At that audition, Alex performs several types of dances for the judges, including a little ballet and some breakdancing, which was a new dance craze in 1983. The music and the celebratory lyrics of the title song are finally shown on screen as Alex shows her passion and impresses the judges.
The full title of the song is Flashdance, What a Feeling. The word flashdance is never heard in the song, but Paramount executives were adamant that the title of the song include that word so it could help the marketing department when trying to create a tie-in with the movie. The music for the song was composed by Giorgio Moroder, who was urged to write the score for Flashdance after his great work on American Gigolo in 1980. That movie was produced by Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson and featured Call Me, which became a number one song from Maroder but failed to earn an Oscar nomination. When Flashdance got the green light, Maroder was one of the first people that the producers hired. Maroder sent in some music ideas before filming began, one of which would become the basis for What a Feeling. The song was not written before filming the final audition scene. I'm not sure what music was played on the set for that, but this scene is what lyricists Keith Forsey and Irene Cara watched in order to come up with ideas for the words. Forsey has been a longtime collaborator with Maroder as a drummer on many of the songs Maroder wrote and produced for Donna Summer, and was eager to get into movie soundtracks. Irene Cara has said in interviews that she didn't want to work with Giorgio Maroder because she thought he would turn her into a Donna Summer clone but she quickly found out that would not be the case. The story goes that after Kara and Forsey watched the audition scene and listened to a rough draft of Maroder's music, they got into a car and were driven to the recording studio. In the time it took them to go across town from the Paramount lot to the recording studio, they had the chorus and most of the verses written. Kara used her experience working on fame to create the idea of dreaming big, having those dreams shattered, but still finding the deep passion. The slow beginning of What a Feeling brings to mind out here on my own, while the up-tempo portion is very much in the vein of the Oscar-winning song Fame, in that it celebrates success. The two versions of What a Feeling heard in the movie differ greatly from the version that was released commercially. After the first chorus, there's another verse where we get as close to putting the word flash dance into the song. Flashdance, What a Feeling was the first single released from the soundtrack in March 1983, just a month before the film came out. It was such a big hit that the initial 60,000 copies of the song sold out in a few weeks. And just as many pop songs had done in the years before it, What a Feeling had a music video cobbled together for repeated plays on MTV. 
That probably wasn't going to have much of an impact on the older members of the Academy Music Branch, but it surely helped sales and boost the box office for Flashdance. What a Feeling stayed on the Billboard Hot 100 chart for 25 weeks, ranking as the number one song in the United States for six weeks in May and June. It was also number one in Europe, Australia, South America, and Africa, becoming one of the few Oscar-nominated songs to be so popular all over the world. The other Oscar-nominated song from Flashdance was also a big hit and became the stuff of urban legend. The title is Maniac, written by Michael Sambello and Dennis McCoskey. Both of them were born and raised in Philadelphia, which is on the other side of the state from Pittsburgh, where Flashdance takes place. But it probably gave them an advantage when the filmmakers were looking for songwriters. The song they wrote only appears once in the film, and it's during one of the most famous scenes in the movie. Alex has just come home from working at the steel mill, and after watching a ballet performance on TV, puts on her leg warmers for a dancing workout. Maniac is the song that plays during this scene, and its driving percussion and urgent beat alone can get your heart racing. As we see Alex sweating and grinding through her paces, the song talks about Alex being a steel town girl who dances into the danger zone when the dancer becomes the dance. I wouldn't go so far as to call Alex a maniac on the floor, but perhaps this lyric relates to the passion that was described in What a Feeling. The song gets cut off in the film during the electric guitar solo before the final chorus. Michael Sambello sings the song, and performs that electric guitar solo.
The urban legend I mentioned earlier relates to the creation of the song. The story that followed the song for many years claimed that Maniac was originally written for the 1980 horror movie Maniac, then repurposed for Flashdance. That would have made the song ineligible, and I'm sure the Academy would have done its due diligence and discovered that Maniac wasn't written for Flashdance, if this indeed were true. That story has been circulating for many, many years, with the songwriters staying mostly quiet about it. Until May 2010, when the director of the movie Maniac, William Lustig, tracked down Michael Sembello and Dennis Matkowski to officially set the record straight. Here is a portion of that conversation that the three men had. Do you want me to kind of tell you the whole genesis? Yeah, of please. It? I gotta he's, hear this. He's responsible okay. for us sitting well, here right now. I, I was watching the news one night, and um, we were living in the valley, and they found all these bodies. I think it was Gacy, and I just thought, my luck, this guy lives next door to me. <laughs> so I just wrote down on a piece of paper while I'm watching news doodling. He's a maniac. He just moved next door. He'll kill your cat and nail it to the floor. He'll rape your mother and screw your wife. He's a maniac. So I go out to the living room and say to my wife, Leslie, what do you think of this title? She goes, go get some help. <laughs> like, like, go talk to somebody. I think there's some anger problems uh, there. So I go over to, uh, to Michael's house and I say to Michael, I don't know if it was in a hot tub or whatever, I say to him, what do you think of this title? I say, Maniac. And his eyes get real wide. He goes, all right, hit the weirdest chord you know. <laughs> we thought it was a joke. Mm -hmm. Because we weren't trying to write a song. We were trying to make our friends laugh. We so were this was a whim. Doing the song was like a whim. This, it was not really, you never thought like, it had any commercial. None whatsoever. <laughs> we didn't Musical know. therapy, actually, we, too. It was just... I hit that chord, and Michael started singing what I thought was Bally High. <laughs> Just a steel Bally But it wasn't, wasn't talked about. He just came out with this melody. And then when it came to the B section, there was a song that we had heard as kids called DOA, Dead on Arrival. And it used the, the uh, English... Um, ambulance, which was musically terms a tritone. Da, 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 da. So we put that in there, and that was the B section. And then Michael just sang simply, he maniac, maniac, and I followed him on piano. When it came to the solo section, Michael goes, What about a mongoloid playing <laughs> chopsticks? <laughs> <laughs> so he went over to the piano and started playing clusters with dun, 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 and I immediately went to the bottom part and did um, cello parts. Doom, doom, ba, da, 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 doom, doom. So before we knew it, we were done. That was really the genesis of it. Now came the work. Phil Ramone came over the next day. He says, I've got this movie that I'm working on. The only way you're ever going to get this song cut is if you rewrite the lyrics to the script. Yeah, but how did over, Maniac did fit into this? The movie Maniac. He rented the, the movie. Whenever we get an idea, we start researching. We, we didn't have Google. So some, you came over, the, I think the next day we were trying, we were sitting in the jacuzzi, trying to come up with, with this lyrics. This jacuzzi plays an right. important role and he in goes, your uh, You know, beer, jacuzzi, right. California. Right. So <laughs> you know. he, and, and he, you said, hey, I found a movie called Maniac. Let's look at, we watched the movie and we're going. That's oh. right. That's right. right, he brought the movie over, right? And I'm going like, this is really cool. It's got nothing to do with fucking, with, with Flashdance, excuse me. Nothing to do with Flashdance. And we're, and we're, we're just like watching the movie and 
thinking of like horror stuff. Dude. Do you remember your initial lyrics on it? Do you, just I was what I told to... you, you know, um, he, he's a maniac. He just moved next door. He'll kill your cat and nail it to the floor. Or rape your mother and screw your wife. This is the man sitting right here that if his wife didn't say, You're, you need some help, and he comes over and he knows I'll, I'll be the guy that will just go with it. Yeah, you know, exactly. He's, Let's, yeah, it's a great idea. Let's, so you your know. wife is the one who really was the one. <laughs> yeah, I think yes, so, Leslie. Exactly. Are you still married? Yes, 36 years later. Oh, that's great. And just to show how close the original version of Maniac was to what we hear in Flashdance, McCoskey sat at the piano and played their first version with Cimbello singing the early lyrics. Just as a warning, there is adult language at the beginning of the performance. So we're just going to pretend like we're writing a song. Okay. Okay. First of all... Sorry, man. I bought it from a serial murderer, you know? It was, it was a discount. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, guys. 
Once Makotsky and Cimbello were hired to rework the song for Flashdance, it was amazing that many of the lines were able to remain intact. No matter how the song was created, the public went crazy for Maniac when they heard it in the film and heard it on the radio. It was a number one song on the Billboard Hot 100 for two weeks in September 1983. Like What a Feeling, the music video for Maniac was performed often on MTV in the summer of 1983. The soundtrack for Flashdance revived the trend of putting multiple songs into a non-musical film in an effort to sell records. Paramount Pictures had such an amazing track record with making songs transfer from film to album, starting with Saturday Night Fever and continuing to Flashdance. The studio, with the help of Flashdance's producers Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, will continue to earn big profits from record sales as the 80s go on. Looking at these two nominated songs from Flashdance brings to mind the nominees from the first year songs were nominated for an Academy Award. In 1934, two songs about dancing were also nominated, though from different films. Carioca was a song about a Brazilian love dance that has Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers trying out some moves as well. And the song that won the Oscar, The Continental, was about a more traditional ballroom dance that was part of a 12-minute sequence. It's amazing to see that the more things change, the more they stay the same. The way the songs are presented and performed in 1934 and 1983 are very, very different, but the topic is the same. The two Oscar-nominated songs from the musical Yentl didn't get music videos, but with Barbara Streisand performing them, they became big hits. As do most songs do in musicals, the ones in Yentl keep the plot moving and serve as memorable monologues. In this case, Yentl is the only person to sing in the movie, which had been a point of contention for me given that Tony-winning singer and actor Mandy Patinkin is in the movie, as is Amy Irving, who proved that she could sing a couple of years earlier in Honeysuckle Rose. But this is a Barbara Streisand project, and on the surface, it would appear that Vanity took over. But... The way the songs are presented would prevent any other character from having a song moment. Yento only sings out loud when she is alone, and when she is in the company of others, the song becomes a voiceover, except at the end of the final song. It's a great way of appealing to those who don't like musicals where people seem to burst into song for no reason. The songs in Yento are all presented as Yento's inner thoughts, sometimes sung aloud. All 11 songs in Yentl were written by the Oscar-winning team of Michelle Legrand and Alan and Marilyn Bergman, who first teamed up for The Windmills of Your Mind. Though Streisand had been planning to make this movie since she won her Oscar for acting in Funny Girl in 1968, she couldn't get it off the ground because everyone thought she was either too old or too feminine to be believed as a young Jewish girl who poses as a boy to study in a yeshiva in Eastern Europe. Four years before production began, the Bergmans were told about Yentl and proposed that it be a musical. What's interesting about their proposal is that the Bergmans had little experience with writing musicals. They wrote the songs for two failed Broadway musicals in 1964 and 1978, and all of their movie song contributions before Yentl consisted of just one or two songs for non-musical films. But they had Michelle Legrand working with them, and Legrand had great success with movie musicals. He had his big breakthrough with the Umbrellas of Cherbourg in 1964, 
a completely sung-through musical that required the songs to be 100% relevant to the plot. The first nominated song that we hear in Yentl is Papa Can You Hear Me? Yentl's father has died, and instead of leading a life that she does not think is right for her, Yentl cuts off her hair and decides to run away to live a life as a young man. That night, she finds herself alone in the woods, where she lights a candle and sings to her father in heaven, asking him to forgive her and give her strength on her journey.
One of the highlights of the song is that 15-second note that Streisand sings at the end of the song. I'm not sure if Streisand asked for it or if Legrand made the choice to end the song that way. It's a moment that not only gives the song a memorably tender end, but shows that Streisand's voice hadn't changed since she belted out that long note at the end of Don't Rain on My Parade in the middle of Funny Girl. After the soundtrack to Yentl was released in November 1983, Papa Can You Hear Me was one of the songs released as a single. Though the song couldn't make it into the Billboard Hot 100 list, this love song to Yentl's father was a big radio hit on adult contemporary stations. The first song to be released from the million-selling Yentl soundtrack was The Way He Makes Me Feel, the second song from the movie to earn an Oscar nomination. Yentl at this point sings it after a scene at a lake where her secret is almost discovered when her study partner, Avigdor, tries to get her to take off her clothes and swim in the lake. Avigdor has taken off his clothes and, like the other men there, is completely naked. The sight of his naked body stirs up new emotions in Yentl, and she sings about the conflicting feelings inside her. We've heard many songs about first love, but this one takes it to another level. Yentl doesn't know how to describe the emotions at first, but then she realizes that she likes it and traces it back to Avigdor. There's no chill and yet I shiver There's no flame and yet I burn I'm not sure what I'm afraid of and yet I'm trembling There's no storm yet I hear thunder And I'm breathless why I wonder Weak one moment
This is the song that kicks off the love story in the movie, which many people, including the original author of the story, Isaac Bashevis Singer, have criticized. But like Tootsie, the central conflict of cross-dressing can only carry a film so far, and the love story helps elevate the tension. Unlike Papa Can You Hear Me, the commercial release of The Way He Makes Me Feel is very different from the film version. Legrand's music is given a contemporary spin, complete with synthesizers. Streisand sings this as if she's a lounge singer, and apparently people liked it. The song went as high as number 40 on the Billboard Hot 100 in December 1983, and was a number one song on the Billboard Adult Contemporary chart for two weeks. Streisand's nearly two-decade passion for making Yentl finally paid off, financially and creatively. Not every critic loved it, but many of them noted Streisand's gift for directing. 
The public kept the movie in the top 10 for several weeks, and the movie made $40 million. The talk around Hollywood was whether or not Streisand would become just the second woman to earn an Academy Award nomination for directing, but it didn't pan out that way. She did, however, become the first woman to win the Golden Globe for directing, making her the first person to win three Golden Globes in three different categories. The fifth nominated song in 1983 might seem like the proverbial fifth wheel in this competition, and on the surface, maybe it is. The song doesn't provide the same impact for its film as its four competitors, but it was good enough to convince Music Branch members to nominate it as one of the best of the year. The song is Over You, one of several original songs written for the movie Tender Mercies. Robert Duvall plays a struggling alcoholic country singer whose life gets a little redemption when he meets a widow in a small Texas town. Duvall was mostly known as the consigliere Tom Hagen from the Godfather movies, the strange Boo Radley in To Kill a Mockingbird, and the napalm-loving Kilgore in Apocalypse Now. Nothing really prepared audiences for this performance as Mac, in which Duvall sings all of his songs. He doesn't sing over you, though. That goes to Betty Buckley, who plays his ex-wife Dixie, who is also a country singer. The song was written by Mac and has become one of Dixie's biggest hits. Dixie is performing the song at a small theater in Austin, Texas, and Mac has come to watch. Dixie doesn't know that Mac is in the audience, so this torch song about trying to get over a past love doesn't carry much significance at the time. In the next scene, Dixie and Mac argue, so it's clear that Dixie does not still have feelings for her ex-husband. Tender Mercies was playing in movie theaters in March 1983, 
Betty Buckley was playing the role of Grizabella in the Broadway production of Cats, which featured the iconic song Memory. So Buckley had the singing chops and the name recognition for some, even though her time in the movie is short. We don't hear the song in its entirety in the film because the movie cuts back and forth between Dixie performing the song and Mac reacting to it outside the theater. Betty Buckley didn't get to sing the full version that appears on the soundtrack. That job went to Lane Brody, a country singer who wasn't as popular as Betty Buckley, but was probably cheaper. love is blind And here I am to prove it one more time Forget about my pride I didn't mean to catch you by surprise And I hope that isn't pity in your eyes I've tried so hard The songwriters for Over You were Austin Roberts and Bobby Hart, who had a top 20 Billboard hit in 1972 with Something's Wrong With Me, which Roberts sang. Probably Roberts' most lasting contribution to the music industry before earning his Oscar nomination was singing the theme song to the Scooby-Doo TV show in 1970. 
He stopped singing in 1980 to focus on songwriting, which served him well when director Bruce Beresford was looking for songwriters for Tender Mercies. Bobby Hart had been half of a songwriting duo with Tommy Boyce in the 1960s, and their biggest chunk of work was writing and producing many of the hit songs for the pop group and TV sensation The Monkees in the mid to late 1960s. The hits included their TV theme song and Last Train to Clarksville. Hart and Boyce kind of parted ways with the Monkees in the early 1970s and didn't rest on the royalty checks they were getting. In 1973, Hart and Boyce, along with Charles Albertine, composed the opening theme music for the NBC soap opera Days of Our Lives, music that still plays at the beginning of every show 40 years later. Hart and Boyce went their separate ways in 1978, leaving the door open for Roberts and Hart to reunite for Tender Mercies. Their lone contribution to the Best Picture nominee Tender Mercies did okay in terms of record sales and radio play on country music stations reaching number 15 on the Billboard Country Charts in summer 1983. Okay, so those are the five nominees for Original Song in 1983. Flashdance, What a Feeling, Maniac, Over You, Papa Can You Hear Me, and The Way He Makes Me Feel. Let's talk now about some songs that might have been in the running for the Oscar nomination. Lenny Hall was the wife of famed trumpeter Herb Albert, and for five years from 1966 to 1971, she was the lead singer for Brazilian Sergio Mendez's band. She then began working with Herb Albert on a solo career before marrying Albert in 1973. Everything was going well for Lenny Hall in 1983 when she was asked to sing the theme song for the latest James Bond film, Never Say Never Again. This film brought Sean Connery back to the role, though the movie was not being made by the usual production company handling the Bond films. The title song, written by Michelle Legrand and Alan and Marilyn Bergman, is performed by Lenny Hall during the opening credits, when Bond is seemingly on a mission in the jungle to infiltrate a heavily guarded compound. The song is about a woman trying to seduce a man who is refusing her advances. The song and the visuals don't match here, which is probably a major reason why the song was not nominated for the Oscar. If you've seen the movie, you know how jarring it is to hear this love song during this scene.
The movie Never Say Never Again was a big hit and was the film debut for Kim Basinger, so it has that going for it. Since Yentl's music was recorded in London, it was easy for Legrand to move straight from that musical to working with this Bond film in London. The song Never Say Never Again didn't do very well with the public, failing to appear on the Billboard Hot 100 and not helping to sell copies of the soundtrack album. Unable to get an Oscar nomination, it showed that the Academy's music branch wasn't just checking off boxes for any song written by the Bergmans and Legrand that year, and that James Bond was going out of favor with the Academy's music branch. Even the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which had been known to take risks and nominate mediocre songs, didn't put Never Say Never Again on its list of original song nominees for 1983. The HFPA almost completely predicted the eventual Oscar nominees, picking four of the five songs that would be named Oscar nominees a couple of weeks later after they competed for the Golden Globe on January 28, 1984. The only one left out was Papa Can You Hear Me, replaced by the song Far From Over. Written by Frank Stallone, it comes from Staying Alive, that, um, well, let's just say not necessary sequel to Saturday Night Fever. The movie got zero positive reviews, but it made $127 million in spite of the critical bashing. Sylvester Stallone wrote and directed the movie, and after he gave his brother Frank a chance to contribute a song for Rocky III the previous year, naturally there would be a Frank Stallone song or two or four in Staying Alive. Far From Over comes during a dizzying montage featuring John Travolta's Tony auditioning for a Broadway play, with shots of dancers performing some high-quality moves during rehearsals. The song talks about not giving up, which works with this part of the film when Tony gets a second chance at a dance career with this audition. Vince DeCola wrote Far From Over with Frank Stallone. DeCola was hired as the composer for Staying Alive, writing a few instrumental tracks that would barely be noticed alongside the Frank Stallone songs and new ones written by the Bee Gees. The song went to number 10 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart, though, the only time Frank Stallone would have a song make it onto the Billboard charts. 
Far From Over really didn't stand a chance at the Golden Globes against two number one songs and one performed by Barbara Streisand. And it was Flashdance, What a Feeling, that won the Golden Globe. Twelve days after the Academy Award nominations were announced on February 16, 1984, What a Feeling and Maniac competed for the top Grammy Award, Record of the Year. Irene Cara sang What a Feeling at the Grammy Awards, which could do no harm with Oscar voting just about to start. But there was no way those songs stood a chance at the Grammys against anything that came from the juggernaut album Thriller by Michael Jackson. Beat It won Record of the Year, with Thriller taking Album of the Year over the soundtrack to Flashdance. Michael Cimbello and Dennis McCotsky's song Maniac had to compete with two songs from Thriller for Song of the Year at the Grammys, but Sting took that award for Every Breath You Take. Even though they weren't the top prizes, Flashdance did win three Grammys that night. Irene Cara won Best Female Pop Performance for What a Feeling, the album won Best Movie Soundtrack, and Giorgio Moroder was a winner for Best Instrumental Composition for his love theme. What a Feeling and Maniac were the two songs that seemed to be the front rows for the Oscar, and certainly the songwriters worried that two songs from the same film might cancel each other out in voting. But they could take heart that Fame won the Oscar for Best Song over Out Here on My Own. Irene Cara's first order of business was performing What a Feeling on the Oscar show, and the producers had the right idea to make it a major performance piece similar to what she did three years earlier when she sang both nominated songs from Fame. This time she's on stage dancing with several young children from New York's National Dance Institute. The Institute's leader, Jacques Demboise, was the subject of that year's Oscar-winning documentary, He Makes Me Feel Like Dancing. And the kids were on stage later to celebrate the win with the director, Emile Ardolino. And don't forget that name, because he'll be mentioned again in a future episode of the Best Song Podcast. Though the performance of What a Feeling was energetic, what stands out is the applause track that the director used quite often during the performance. You could tell that the audience is not applauding because several wide shots of the auditorium during the performance show people sitting in their seats, not clapping. And Michael Cimbello's place to perform Maniac was an odd choice. Lenny Hall and Herb Alpert, the married couple who performed on the not-nominated Never Say Never Again. The performance on the Oscar show gave Alpert a chance to showcase his trumpet playing with a brassy rendition of the song's melody before Lenny Hall put a disco spin on the lyrics. And more dancers filled the stage for this song, though they were all adult and all female. The director put more fake applause and cheering through the song, which becomes more obvious as the song goes along. Because Barbara Streisand was denied a directing Oscar nomination, apparently she had no plans to attend the Academy Awards to cheer on her nominated co-workers from Yentl, and asked her longtime friend Donna Summer to sing Papa Can You Hear Me that night. Summer did a fine job, but of course, she's not Barbara Streisand. Neither is Dreamgirls Tony winner Jennifer Holliday, who turned The Way He Makes Me Feel into a sultry R&B number. There's no chill, and yet I shiver. 
there's no flame and yet I burn I'm not sure what I'm afraid of and yet I'm trembling there's no storm yet I hear thunder and I'm breathless why I wonder weak one moment then the next I'm fine I feel as if I'm falling every time I close my eyes and flowing through my body is a river of surprise feelings awakening As a man, what are all these new sensations? What's the secret they reveal? I'm not sure. Given that she wasn't allowed to sing on the Tender Mercy soundtrack, it's no surprise that Betty Buckley wasn't asked to sing Over You at the Oscars. Even though she had recently won a Tony Award for her role as Grizabella in Cats and made Memory one of the most popular Broadway songs of the 1980s. Mac Davis, who could be best described as a B-list country singer, got the invite to sing Over You and didn't screw it up, but it was probably the least memorable performance of the night. It was a little bit unusual, but all three music awards were presented together on Oscar night. Original song was first, and once Jennifer Beals walked out to present the award with newcomer Matthew Broderick, I'm sure all of the songwriters in attendance who didn't write a song for Flashdance realized their chances were suddenly very low. Bringing out a presenter who starred in one of the movies that's nominated in that category usually means that film will win. And as expected, Flashdance, What a Feeling, was named the best original song of 1983. Giorgio Moroder didn't attend the ceremony to pick up his second Oscar, but of course Irene Cara was there, as was co-lyricist Keith Forsey. Irene Cara said it was an honor to get the award from Jennifer Beals, mentioning that her performance helped create the song. But if you remember any of the dancing in Flashdance, you know that Jennifer Beals isn't doing any of the dancing, but rather French actress Marie Jahan and a male breakdancer named Crazy Legs. But perhaps she was really referring to Jennifer Beals' actual acting in the rest of the movie. She also thanked Alan Parker for giving her the breakout role in Fame. With the win for Flashdance What a Feeling, we continue to have this full circle moment in the Best Original Song category at the Academy Awards. You'll remember that the first winning song was The Continental, a song about a dance craze that was sweeping all over Europe and featured a lengthy dance sequence. And in the 50th year of the category, the winning song was also about dancing. And in the years between, only one other Oscar-winning song was about dancing, 1978's Last Dance. 
It's amazing that by sheer coincidence, the first and 50th Oscar-winning songs have this relation to each other. But there's another connection. One of the writers of The Continental, Herb Magidson, had been the record holder as the youngest Oscar-winning songwriter at 28 years old, until 26-year-old Keith Carradine took it over for I'm Easy. And now, at 25 years old, Irene Cara takes the record as the youngest Oscar-winning songwriter. She's also the third consecutive woman to win the award, and the second straight woman of color to be named an Oscar-winning songwriter, following in the footsteps of Buffy St. Marie. I really wish I could say that things only got better for Irene Cara after she walked off the Oscar stage that night, but I can't. As the performer and co-writer of What a Feeling, Cara was entitled to lots of royalties from sales and radio play, but as of the end of 1984, she had only received about $60,000. That's a pittance considering that the song had sold more than a million copies, and that the album had sold more than a million copies, and was still a big hit after the Oscar win. In the book, The 16th Minute, Kara talked about trying to get the more than $1 million she felt she was owed, and she decided to sue Network Records and its owner, Al Khoury, for $12 million. After the lawsuit was filed in 1985, Irene Kara had a tough time getting acting work, couldn't get any performance dates, and was treated badly in Hollywood. Because Network Records went bankrupt in the late 1980s, the odds of Kara getting a victory in court were very low. But in 1993, she was awarded $1.5 million, which was the most she could be awarded with the corporations no longer existing. Irene Kara would find a career touring the world with moderately sized concerts, but never reached the level of notoriety that she enjoyed in the early 1980s. She died on November 25, 2022, at the age of 63. Austin Roberts kept writing and recording through the 1980s, but Bobby Hart retired from the business in the mid-1980s at nearly 50 years old. Though neither of the two songs from Yentl won the original song Oscar, the song score was honored with an Oscar, giving the Bergmans and Michelle Legrand each their third Academy Awards. Things didn't improve for Legrand after scoring two major films in 1983, with The Frenchman never earning another Academy Award nomination. For the next 10 years, his filmography consisted of scoring low-budget films both in the United States and his native France. Things seemed to pick up just a bit in 1994 when Legrand got the chance to score the Disney movie Angels in the Outfield but nothing he would write in the rest of his career would bring him more respect from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. As for the Bergmans, they'll keep working continuously, and we'll hear more songs from them on this podcast. The success for the Flashdance album at the Grammys proved once and for all that a movie soundtrack was a profitable way to promote movies. Other producers took notice, and almost all of the top-selling albums of 1984 would come from movies featuring multiple hit songs that would keep promoting the movies on the radio for many months. And it wouldn't stop there. Decades later, the movie soundtrack album has become a major promotion for movies, and a great bonus moneymaker too. So, I think we have to thank Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson for that. I've had so much fun exploring the songs nominated in this 50th year of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. Though things went full circle in 1983, we're going to find that movie songs are going to take a big leap forward for 1984, 
though dancing will still remain a big, big part of the nominee list. I am excited to share those songs with you on the next episode. And don't forget that you can send me an email at jeffswim at aol.com with your thoughts about anything you've heard on the show, including your thoughts on the past 50 years of Oscar-winning songs. Thanks for singing along with me on this episode, and we'll do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.